0: Hello and welcome to the FSU conversation. During our regular segments, we will highlight FSU School of Communication, its students, alumni, and happenings in the industry. I'm your host, Austin Ricart, and I'm a senior majoring in public relations and also a director's ambassador for the School of Communication. Today, we are joined by a very special guest, Dean Larry Dennis, Dean of the FSU College of Communication and Information. Dean Dennis has been at the helm of the college since 2009, and we are honored to have him with us today. So, let's jump right in. Dean Dennis, welcome to the podcast.
1: Well, thank you very much, Austin. I'm really delighted to be here.
0: All right, so let's jump right into questions. So some people may not know this, but you hold a PhD in physics and even were a professor for various physics courses here at FSU in years past. Would you mind walking us through your journey between physics and also being the dean of the School of Communication and Information?
1: I got to FSU in July of 1979 as a postdoc and joined the faculty in August of 1980 as an assistant professor in physics. So I've been here a while. I actually taught in physics and did research in physics for a little over 20 years while I was here at FSU. Taught almost all of the large physics classes at one point in time. My best guess was somewhere in the neighborhood of 15 to 18,000 students that went through classes that I taught. So I've been doing that for a long time. And while I was in physics, I was involved with the nuclear physics group here at FSU, but was doing some very large experiments at Thomas Jefferson National Lab, which is in Newport News, Virginia. And my role in those experiments really was to develop the computer hardware and software that we were going to use to to acquire and analyze the data that we got. And there were a lot of exciting things happening in computer technology at the time. And so for no fault of ours, the amount of data that we were going to be able to get was just huge. Something that really hadn't happened in science at that point in time. And so we we were going to generate and analyze a terabyte of data a day. And that was at a time when people didn't even know really what a gigabyte was and so it was a it was a lot of data produced about a quarter of a million documents every year as a result of that research and And as we started some of the things that happened like Cluster computing, using lots of computers to solve a single problem. Cloud computing, using specialized remote computing resources. And the World Wide Web was actually invented by a nuclear physics researcher at CERN in Geneva, Switzerland. And one of the postdocs here at the time was over at the lab in Switzerland and saw the discussion, the presentation of the World Wide Web as it was being developed, and he asked if he could bring a web server, a prototype web server over to FSU so we could test whether the World Wide Web could work over the ocean. Um, and so they said, yes, sure. And they asked this guy, his name, his name was Saul Youssef. He asked, what do you want the domain name to be? And nobody really heard of what domain names were, but he said, well, how about www.fsu.edu? And that's how we got that name. The inventor of the, inter- of the World Wide Web gave it to us. We've had it ever since. Some people say one of the first five web servers in the world. So when I saw that tool in operation, it became clear to me that the problems we were having in physics with managing all of our data, with collaborating with scientists all over the world who were doing critical and different parts of the experiment, that that was the way we were going to solve the problem. We were going to be able to use the web to communicate our science to each other as we were doing it. And so we really started right then trying to build everything for the web for that experiment. And, and what we discovered is that it, yeah, it did work to a point, but our ability to manage information as a scientific collaboration was what limited our ability to publish our results. We couldn't analyze and, and understand the science fast enough because we were spending too much time trying to figure out where the information was, how to get it to the right place and so on. And so one of the faculty members here in computer science, his name was Greg Riccardi, he and I started trying to figure out how do we solve this problem? How do we manage this much information? What we discovered was the people who were best at this worked in libraries. So we started thinking about this problem in the abstract and saying, well, who else has this problem? We, we decided that, you know, eventually it's going to be true in education, in government, in law, in business, anything you think of, the problem of managing information to accomplish your goals, either personally or as, as a group, we're going to dominate our ability to do these things well. And so that was really the part that started getting me involved in what was then the School of Information Studies And um, I was trying to find other venues within the university community where I could use the things we were learning about how to manage information there. And it turns out that um, the Office of Distributed and Distance Learning was just getting started. And so I ended up as director really starting, I think, in 2001, and so started there. And while I was director of the Office for Distributed Distance Learning, I was working with the School of Information Studies on helping them find a dean. I ended up on the committee to search for the dean. I think they threw me off after about a month and told me to apply. And so I ended up as really dean of what became the first college of information in the country. You know, that was really the work of the former Dean to get that name changed, but it it happened. And, and the other thing that we did immediately then is we started an information technology program. You know, as I, was, I continued to work on all of these different IT problems, one of the things was clear to me and was one of the reasons that the IT program was founded the way it was, was that it's, IT is not really about computers. It's about people. And when you want, if you want to take advantage of the of the changing technology, you've got to get people and organizations to change. And guess what? That's a communication problem. This whole diffusion of innovation and organizational change and project management are all really communication problems. And so you really can't do IT without dealing with people, without dealing with communication. You know, you've got people, information, communication, technology. Those are the things that come together to help you solve those problems and so that got me very much involved in the communication side of things and then I would say about 2007 John Mayo who was the current dean of the College of Communication came to me and said you know we really ought to think about merging these two colleges he says I'm going to retire but it sure seems like there are a lot of things that would be advantageous to have these groups of faculty working together. And so as a, a two colleges, we talked about those things for about two years before we finally decided we were going to merge. And then figuring out how to merge took us a little bit longer. And, and so in July of 2009, I became dean of the College of Communication and Information. And so again, that it really was looking at where is society going in terms of how it manages information, communicates with other people, and what can we do as a college to help understand that, guide that to the extent that we can, that really got me excited. And I convinced myself oh, there were lots of things that growing on in physics, but this problem was probably going to be the problem of our generation, how you communicate information effectively across groups of people. So that's what got me here.
0: Being able to hear where our, not just our school, where our school came from, but the website of the entire school alone, you really were just such a huge part of so many hidden aspects of the school that we use every single day that no one really stops to think about where it came from. And so thank you so much for that insight. That was so cool to learn.
1: Well, I'm glad to do it. You know, I think one of the things that happened there that was when we merged, one of the first things we did was we started this information communication and technology major. And and that major really has done a lot to combine some of the expertise from communication with the expertise from IT and information. And so you'll see a lot of those undergraduates when they get their degree. First of all, they're they're really in very high demand across the university and in industry. That ICT program produces students who know about information, information technology and communication. They're very high demand in industry but they also end up going either into graduate programs in communication or graduate programs in information technology. And so those kids have gotten really good opportunities as a result of that. And, and so that was really the very first thing we did when we put the college together is create that program, and, and it's been extremely successful
0: extremely successful. I just giving students that well-rounded view of not just communication, but also information as well. It just really makes a well-rounded applicant for the workforce. It really has that just group of skills that can all come together to be really valuable to a company and to the industry as a whole.
1: Yeah. And we find a lot of those kids, a lot of those alumni, they're not kids anymore. Even I'm, re- I'm really old, but <laughs> a lot of those alumni, they go out and they work at companies and you know, five years later, they're running the section, you know, the IT development
0: section of that company because they they are so well-rounded. Right, exactly. So, now that we have a little bit better picture of of how you became the dean of the School of Communication and Information, what would you say to be the most rewarding aspects of your position?
1: Well, you know, I, I would say that just watching what our students, faculty, and alumni do and seeing the impact they have on the people around them, that's got to be the most, one of the most rewarding things. When you go out, you talk with some of the alumni and you look at the jobs they have and, and the impact they're having on their community, you realize it's just huge. It's just huge. And collectively, it's just such a big impact on, on our society. And I would say you see that from our alums, you see it from the faculty the research activities that they're involved in the students that they produce or help produce it's just phenomenal and and i would say since i've been here i've been here 40 years and i w- would say that quality of fsu students has been going up dramatically over the years and i and i think it's it's really partially because students are working harder they're more focused you know even in high school, you, you see these kids that are just tremendously focused on accomplishing something. And so, you know, I would say watching them, seeing what they do, seeing them work towards their goals, and, and many of them get there even while they're in college, has just been really enjoyable, really enjoyable. I'm also excited about where we are as a college. When we merged we were really thinking about the importance of the things that we do to society. You know, we're talking about managing information, we're talking about information technology, we're talking about advertising, PR, media, media communication studies, talking about communication science and disorders, which is really helping people fully participate in a society that depends essentially on information sharing and communication. And it seems to me like we are really well positioned to provide students really critical skills and to do research in really critical problems that our society is wrestling with and probably is going to be wrestling with for the next hundred years. Those two things, I think, are, are really pretty
0: rewarding for me. I can imagine just being here as long as you have and seeing all of these students and what they're doing in the workforce and how they're changing the world and that you had a part in helping them grow to get to that point. I, well, I can't I, imagine.
1: Yeah. I just think I'm a cheerleader, but anyway, <laughs> that's well, my job. That. <laughs> but, but um, yeah, it, it is phenomenal to watch. Yeah. It's just, it's phenomenal to see what they can accomplish.
0: Exactly. Well, every championship team has cheerleaders. So yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> yeah. So now we've got a little bit better picture of the most rewarding aspects. Can you give us a little bit more insight on what the most challenging aspects are of your position?
1: Well, I mean, I think this is true of almost every dean. One of the biggest parts of our job is to try and find the resources so that we can accomplish our goals. And and I would say because we're in such a high demand area, Growing fast enough, evolving fast enough to keep up with that is really the toughest part of the job. And trying to figure out, you know, how do you make the investments that are gonna build for the future? How do you find the resources to make those investments? Those things are challenging. You know, because nobody has a crystal ball. Nobody knows what's gonna be like 10 years from now, but you still gotta be ready.
0: Absolutely. I mean, and you've already obviously made changes like that, that were looking for the future that benefited the school as a whole, not just the College of Communication and Information, but the entire school. You saw a need for there to be a better system of information transfer. So you brought in the internet. There needed to be a combination between the School of Communication and Information. So you made it happen. And so I, I honestly just respect being able to have that foresight to really look into the future and and plan what's the industry going to need? What's the, what, not just the industry, but what society as a whole going to yeah. need?
1: Yeah, and I, and I think that there are, you know, there are lots of people at FSU who have been very forward thinking about where the university needed to be, what kinds of things it needed to grow and, and do. I don't know if many of you remember, there's a faculty member now who's, who used to be the uh, vice president for research, his name was Kirby Kemper, and he Kirby was kind of one of my longtime mentors. My office was right next door to his for many, many years, and and we had a discussion. I think it was in 1985 about now that we have the ability to communicate really with anybody, no matter where they are. And and that wasn't really quite true, but it was clear it was coming. What is a university? What is a university's main role, and what distinguishes it from just going out and being able to read something on the internet. And at the time, the web wasn't even there. You read things on the internet in different ways, but you could still do it. And I think we talked about that a long time. And and we eventually decided that, that the thing that makes a university unique is really the collection of unique opportunities and experiences to learn that we can provide to students. That more than anything else, you know, the university collects a set of resources and opportunities that students can participate in that help them learn and experience and apply what they learn in in ways that it's extremely difficult to do anywhere else. And so, you know, really in 1985, we said the, the impact of online learning is going to be, for universities, is going to be we need to provide as many experiences for these, for students as we can, suit experiences that they can't get any other way. And so I think that's one of the things that has been kind of a focus of the college is trying to build and create really, really meaningful real world experiences for students. And, and I, I kind of say what we're trying to do is, is prepare students to work and function effectively with a great deal of complexity and ambiguity and they've got to be able to to function and solve problems when they're complex problems and they don't know much about how it works and a lot of that then is trying to practice by dealing with those kinds of things in in smaller more restricted spaces
0: you know as a student in seeing why we have so many opportunities nowadays to be able to expand our knowledge and really dive into what we think that we can provide to society specifically. Just so cool to see, because like I said earlier, you see everything in action now and it all just seems like a well-oiled machine, but somebody had to build the machine to begin with. So, so thank you for your many contributions to that.
1: Well, it's enjoyable, it's fun doing it.
0: So sort of on the topic of, of looking into the future and unique opportunities, this past year, we've all had to change and adapt in so many ways due to COVID-19. How do you think the college may benefit from the hard work that has gone into adapting to this pandemic? As in, do you see any of the adaptions that we have made lasting even beyond the pandemic because we've just enjoyed how much they've worked better?
1: Well, I would say this this college had some unique benefits that helped us adapt to COVID-19. And we've tried to take advantage of those. We've had at least one online program for 25 years. We've had another one that's about 20 years old, another one that's about 10. So the faculty had taught, many of them had taught in an online environment. What kinds of challenges do students have when their only interaction with you is online? You know, and we learned that from a lot of hurricanes. Just because it's sunny weather in Tallahassee doesn't mean the student in Sarasota isn't having a hard time getting access to power or or the internet or their computer, so that they may not be able to submit their assignment on time. It's not their fault. And so, I think we had a lot of the technology in place, and we'd been working together in eight different buildings. So, we, we were, as, were probably as close to a virtual organization as you want to be within a face to face campus. I actually believe that we were more efficient once the rest of the university kind of caught up with that and that we could do everything online. And so all of the things that we're doing online behind the scenes, I'd like to keep doing those things. I know that there are mixed feelings about advising, but there are an awful lot of students that like remote advising. So I think that's one of the things I think even career advice, anytime that they have to interact with us, there's no reason why they should have to go to a particular building to do that. They can if they want to, but there's no reason why they should have to. And so, I think that's one of the things we're trying to hang on to. I think we're trying to hang on to a little bit of the flexibility in when people work and where they work from. You know, you're seeing this across the country that everybody that's studying is saying, okay, people are actually more efficient at their jobs if they have a little bit of flexibility in what, what hours they work and where they work from. And so, we're trying to maintain as much of that as we can. We're definitely trying to build more online programs. You know, particularly you see it a need for people who are trying to get or professionals, working professionals, but trying to get a master's degree is for the most part, if you're working at an ad agency in Miami, you can't quit your job and come up to Tallahassee for two years to get your master's. So why don't we deliver it to them? And so we're trying to get to the point where we can do that. I think we're trying to get to the point where we can offer and really will be able to offer more online classes in the summer so that students can go home, get a job at home, and still participate in the courses back here at the university. And again, one of the things that you learned that's happened in my lifetime is when I went to school, the, the cost of college was highly subsidized by the state. It still is. But the state also subsidized my room and board. So it was possible for me to work in the summer, save up enough money to pay for my entire college experience, and maybe come home with $50 at the end of the year. Those subsidies for housing, for food, have gone away. Students are paying full price for those things. And so it turns out that the best way to save students money on the cost of their college education is to get them done faster to make, to reduce the the amount of time that they have to be paying for room and board just so they can go to college. And so I think if we can, if we can help speed that up by making it easier for them to complete an extra semester or an extra year online in the summer or before they get here for their first semester, then I think we're helping. I think we've gone a long way into, into helping people complete their last semester, online so students get a job something but they still have some classes to take you know this happens a lot where a student will interview in the fall they'll get a job and the company says oh by the way we want you here in january well now they they've lost that last spring semester and so we we've, we've worked a lot to make sure that it w- that that didn't cost them their degree that they could finish their degree remotely during that last spring semester if that was the situation where they were in Um, So, and and then the last thing I think I want to keep really is we've started doing online ceremonies of various kinds, award ceremonies, scholarship ceremonies. And what we found is that family members can participate in those a lot more regularly than they can if they have to come here. And so when we start doing events in the future, we want to make sure that we're also connecting online to whatever we're doing face to face. And, and so I think that that's what we're trying to do. We tried our very first online open house this year because we couldn't do our college barbecue and we didn't have parents weekend. So we essentially had an open house, kind of like an open house at a PTA meeting, at a K-12 school and just t- telling people what we're doing, how we're doing it, what we're doing to adapt to COVID, how we're trying to help students get through this, trying to look for ideas about what we could do better. I mean, I think that's one of the things we're always looking for. How do we make this experience better for students? Kind of always thought that our job is really to take the resources we have and the students who come to see us and give them the best education we can, whatever the circumstances are. And I think, you know, I think we're going to keep at that. And a lot of that is then trying to figure out how to, how to mix things that can be done online, with things that can be done, that need to be done face-to-face in a way that helps make it more meaningful
0: and more efficient
1: for students.
0: Seems like we're faced with another challenging part of the school history where we just need to make a big adaption, just like back in the day when we needed internet. Yep. So that, and, and seeing all the changes that not just our school is making, but society as well, I think it all ties back to the fact that communicators and and, and those who spread information, we had to really step up in this time more than than most industries have to pass on what we do and what we do well to other people so that they could benefit from it and be able to return to somewhat of a normalcy in their own respective careers. Because like you said, the College of Communication and Information, we already had online programs that were solid and well-rounded and had been in place for, I believe you said 20 years, 25 years already?
1: 25 years. The program and information began online 25 years ago.
0: Yeah, so that was already something in place, pretty seamless transition as far as that's concerned. And with all that work already in place and set up, we were able to help the other schools follow suit, like you said, and get on track to where we were at so that we could build on that. So that's such a, such a great story and really cool to hear behind the scenes with everything that was going on.
1: Yeah. So, so that's a good example of where change management comes in, right? Because even if you've been doing it for 25 years and you think, you know, what you're doing, ultimately, in order to get other people to, to make those same changes, you've got to convince them it's their idea. And, (laughs) and that's one of the hard parts about change management, right? As there are lots of good reasons why people resist change there are lots of not so good reasons why people resist change and but the way to the way to overcome all of them is to get them to believe it's all their idea and and we worked hard at that
0: so now i think we've covered what we're going to be doing in the future for the college but as far as short-term improvements in additions to this college in general what do you foresee coming down the pike for us
1: Well, I mean, I think we're going to continue our focus on on outside the classroom opportunities for students. And we'll build those really within the university as well as external to the university, trying to develop partnerships and, and opportunities. You know, we rely on that. I would say we have students who take formal internships or directed individual studies or research involved in undergraduate research or graduate research. I would say it's, it's probably about 900 a, a year that we do. And so it's, and, and, and so in really in order to make sure that everybody gets those opportunities, the, the opportunities that they want, we're going to have to keep building those. You know, I, I think, so that's one of the things. And, and along those lines, we're trying to, to really create a preschool at the speech and hearing clinic that's one of the things we're working on so that those students have an opportunity to work with kids who have speech disabilities and those simultaneously with students or with kids who don't and so that's again trying to provide those extra opportunities the university has refocused its computer competency graduation requirement to a a, a digital literacy graduation requirement. And that's one of the one of the areas where we offer an awful lot of courses and have a lot of students. And it's in fact been in terms of our enrollments, it's been the fastest growing part of our enrollments across the college. I mean we've grown our majors but but the the courses for non-majors is just grown incredibly. And so we're I think we're going to keep doing that. We, we have a lot of talented students who come to the college that we have to turn away because we don't have capacity for them all. And that's particularly true in communication science and disorders and in communication. In one of the programs, we're trying to, we're trying to double the size of our, of our media production program and expand that in lots of different ways. You know, we're t- trying to take advantage of the fact that our live sports broadcasting activities have grown from, oh, I don't know, six a year, th- three years ago to 200 a year this year. And this is a bad year. So <laughs> so so it's going to be huge there, but we've got lots of students who are not interested in sports. They want to do documentaries. They want to do, oh, they want to do music. They want to do a whole range of other things. And so we're trying to, trying to find the space and the um, equipment and the facilities to to double the size of that program and the faculty. I mean that's the other part that we've got to grow. I think we're also trying to, you know, we're seeing tremendous demand on our on our programs in information uh, in IT and our ICT program. And so we are trying to figure out how to add more faculty so that we can increase those the capacity of those Communication science and disorders typically has to reject six students for every one they take. And that's limitation is primarily based on the number of faculty and the number of clinical placements that you have for students. And so we've been, you know, we've been working across the state to find more clinical placements and to be able to offer our court and we can offer our courses online so that if, a student has to go down to Fort Myers to do their clinical placement in in speech language pathology, they can still take the uh, the rest of the courses they need while they're working in a clinic somewhere else. So I think that's another thing. And then uh, we're trying to grow our public relations, our advertising programs as well. And those are real challenges because they require great writing skills. And so you've got to have a lot of faculty to really help students hone their, their ability to write well. And, and so that's where we're going. Those are the things that we're working on, trying to become bigger there. You know, on the outside of all of that, you've got a whole set of opportunities in health information technology, in cybersecurity. And, you know, when people think about those things, they think, oh, it's well, also health communication, you've got a whole range of skill sets, and you, you really need students graduates from communication as well as from IT to build those those programs and so we're going to try and do that and so that's that's kind of
0: that's kind of a, a plateful right there I think for at least a while. I mean it seems like it all is again going back to just providing more opportunities for students by letting more in by having more classes they can take programs they can join and just instances of work available for them. So important. And, and it, even from when I've joined this school is of just seeing how much it's grown has just been incredible. And it's, it's really a testament to hardworking members of FSU faculty like yourself that really take the initiative to grow those programs. Well, and we've got a lot of really, a good lot of fac- really good faculty. And Absolutely.
1: so when I when we're trying to hire new faculty, one of the things I tell every one of them is, you know, we're trying to hire people who are going to tell me what to do. It's, it's not me telling them what our vision is or what we're trying to do. It's them telling me what we need to do. How do we make these programs better? How do we expand them? What new programs should we be thinking about? That's got to come from the faculty. And, and they're the ones who, who ultimately
0: do the work to make it happen. Well, they're the ones that are the closest with the students themselves, and there's really no one better to tell you what the students need. Yeah, I mean, I,
1: I think that that's, that's another thing that you begin to see is that, that faculty really, in, in many cases, bring out the best in students, and they really are trying to help them become better at what they want to do, you know, and many of them here are extremely good at it, extremely good at it. And that's what it takes. It, I mean, it takes faculty who really care about how the students are, are doing and what they're doing and try and help them really
0: excel. And without that, you just can't run a university. Absolutely. So I'm going to end our segment today with something a little bit more lighthearted and fun. Okay. So I hear that you have some of the, the best chili in town. Uh, this, is, this has come from some very credible sources. I don't know if you can if you'd be willing to, to share your your secret with us on that or or if there's just, you know, it's a family recipe.
1: It's not a family recipe. It it's not even a recipe. Okay. I mean, so so what happens is we have a chili cook-off every year when we can. We didn't have one this year. And and we have some outside judges who come in and judge it. And so they I've, I've won that competition. I don't know how many times. And I think they figured out that it's my chili, but and they've stacked the deck in my favor. But anyway, it's it's a white chicken chili. So it's not your usual chili. And, and, and the, the real secret is I like chili. And so I practice a lot and I do lots of different kinds of chili. And then I make the one that I like and, and that chili you know, I use good chicken, chicken breast that's cut up. I use a number of different kinds of, of beans that I make. And then I, you know, I like jalapeno peppers and I like hot chili. So I tend to make it something that I like, spice the way I like it. And then I make sure it cooks a long time so that it's, it smooths out. It becomes not so much, individual pieces of chili and individual beans, but more of a more of a mix of those things. Yeah. So, but anyway, I, I make chili so that I like it. <laughs> and I think that's the big secret, right? Is to make something that you try it enough and you play with it enough and you do this and that and you change these spices so that eventually you like it. So I know I've got to cook it a long time. I've got to spice the chicken as I cook it and fry it. There are a whole bunch of things that you have to do in the terms of the technique that make it good. Otherwise, it's just kind of a standard chicken, white chicken
0: chili recipe you can get off the internet. <laughs> <laughs> And, well, um, I mean, you must be doing something, right? Because if you make it how you like it and you've been winning these competitions, then obviously you've got a good taste in chili. Then. Or, or they know that I made the white chicken chili. Oh, I don't know about that. I don't know about that. Yeah. Anyway. All right. Well, Dean Dennis, thank you so much for taking time out of your extremely busy schedule to talk with us today. I had such a great time speaking with you.
1: Well, thanks, Austin. I, I really enjoyed it too. And
0: I hear you're doing a great job with these podcasts. So keep up the good work thank you so much for being a part of it. All right, everyone, this exciting special segment is about to come to a close. As always, make sure you follow at FSUCOM on Twitter and FSU Communication on Instagram for more information on future podcast segments and everything else the School of Communication has to offer. So until next time, from all of us here at the FSU School of Communication, and be sure to always remember to keep the conversation rolling.